Good morning, good evening to everyone. Um, today I am speaking with a gentleman that I hope you have some inclination as to who he is. And if you don't, then shame on you. Um, today I'm speaking with Dylan Grice. Um, many of you might have come across Dylan's work when he was at SOCGEN, where he became somewhat famous or infamous. Um, but welcome to Dylan and perhaps um, instead of that fairly lousy introduction, you can give us some inclination as to um, who you are and how it is that you've come to um, building Calderwood Capital. Because I think that's, that's clearly where your focus is now um, and it's your diverse experience that you've had in, in, um, that I'm aware of that presumably has led you to what you're doing now. Um, well, uh, well, firstly, thank you <laughs> for having me on. Um, it's the uh, passion, really, of, of, of a lot of the things that I've been doing in, in the past. You, know, you mentioned SOCGEN. Um, I, um, uh, I, I worked there for several years uh, with Albert Edwards. Um, uh, you know, we did, uh, we had a lot of fun. It was a great time. Uh, and, um, uh, as you say, I, I, I kind of had a, a certain amount of success um, as a pundit um, uh, and as a market commentator, um, and, as I, and that was great. I enjoyed it. But um, before SOCGEN, I had actually been a, a prop trader for, for, for several years. I was actually kind of more used to um, uh, to being involved in the market, directly involved in the market, rather than just talking about markets. Um, so I, I found the kind of experience of, of, of um, being a market commentator f enormous fun though it was. Um, it didn't really satisfy me um, uh, um, enough. It wasn't enough for me. Uh, so I left, um, I kind of went in the, in, in the other direction and I, I moved to Switzerland. I was fortunate enough to be offered a job with a, with a family office over in Switzerland, one of the biggest family offices in Europe. Um, and um, they, they kind of, um, um, well, you know, whether it was a good decision <laughs> or not, I think it worked out okay, but they wanted me to kind of build a, an equity business for them, um, uh, which I did. Uh, and, um, you know, after, after that kind of went reasonably well, uh, they, they kind of asked me if I would do the same thing for the broader liquids business. So I kind of built the um, equity business and then I built the, um, the, the, the broader liquids business, liquid investing uh, business, which was much more of a kind of allocation role. Um, so in the family office, I was kind of um, uh, every single day, every minute of every day, I was thinking about investing. I was thinking about the markets. I built the team. Um, I hired the, uh, the guys. I hired the, um, the analysts. I kind of I laid down the, uh, the intellectual architecture. You know, how do you make decisions? How do you make investment decisions in a non-arbitrary, repeatable way, um, which hopefully um, um, will, will, will stop you from doing stupid things? Um, you know, and I said, how do you build a business? How do you actually build a business? When I joined, my kind of commitment to the family office was that, you know, listen, I'm going to build you something that doesn't need me to run. Okay, so if I leave, it's not all just going to fall apart, right? So there will be some continuity. And the way you get that continuity is that you actually have some kind of common philosophy, some kind of embedded 
ideas about what constitutes correct thinking and what doesn't, right? Um, uh, and so, can, and that's what I did there. So, um, in the family office, it was all it was all investing. It was just pure investing, and it wasn't really very much writing. Um, and uh, one of the things that I did miss about SoftGen, one of the things that I did miss um, about the, the, the world of punditry was 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 that discipline of writing um, your thoughts down. Um, writing about what you think, because this is, for me, and I, I, I think it's probably true for most people who write, this is ultimately how you kind of self-educate, um, and I'd miss that. And so, so Calderwood was really um, a combination of the thinking and the writing. Um, we've started to kind of publish research again on a subscription basis, um, so we don't give it out for free. Um, we, we sell it to, to clients. Um, but it's also um, an investment business. We are in the process of setting up a, a hedge fund right now, which will be a fund of funds very much based on the kind of family office mentality um, and philosophy. Uh, we're aiming to launch that in September. Um, so Calderwood is really, I'm doing this with, uh, with a few partners, by the way, it's not all, all just about me. But Calderwood really is, a, 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 is that combination of the kind of, you know, the, the, the kind of engaging with the markets through Salt, um, as I did with, with Salt Gen, through, through, through writing and exploring ideas and um, but I'm also engaging with the markets in a much more real sense uh, because I'm investing in them because we're going to be investing in uh, through the fund. Fantastic I think that's a great intro into um, your um, I guess evolution um, and it's interesting that you say that I think one of the things that has been um, in, I'm curious as to whether you agree with this statement what I've found is that when, when you sit down to write something, especially if you know that on the other side of that are some ridiculously smart, critical thinkers, when you're forming that, that, that um, opinion, it's always an opinion based on, on the analysis and, and all the various metrics that you're looking at, you go through a process of, of having the devils on your shoulder going, hey, you could be wrong. And, and it's, what you're doing is you're getting up on a stage and you're presenting your thesis or your idea or whatever it might be, um, which it's like, and I, I had this with my son the other day, so he um, has to do a speech at school and, um, and he's put, put this together, he's spent some time on it, I've helped him formulate it. And then he's standing up to, to, you know, practice it with dad. And he's, and, he's, and he's nervous, you know. And I'm like, what the hell is wrong with you? It's like, it's your dad. Like, we've been through this. So, but he's still a little bit, you know, nervous. And, and he gets up. But he knows that when he does get up in front of a class for 30 people, it's even more. Like, there's 30 people who are all now critical. And, and, and then there's the teacher who's going to be really sitting there looking for certain points and so on and so forth. And so to a certain extent, it's that at scale through a digital divide. And when you know that you have, as I'm sure you have clients um, and, and I have clients who are, um, uh, you know, anybody would notice their names um, if they came across them. And these are people that are sitting there on the other side of the material that you're putting forward. Um, and they are, in some instances, your own heroes. Um, it makes you really think critically about what it is that you're doing. And it, and it, it makes, I think you go through a process that is a bit more, um, 
it helps it helps you be more critical i think than i would otherwise like when i was just managing my own capital not writing anything i could make any decision i damn well pleased and i knew it um sure i didn't want to lose money and you've got that skin in the game thing but there's another element to that firstly when you manage other people's capital then it becomes much more real because it's one thing losing your own money losing other people's money is definitely something altogether different and then taking that to an even greater audience of uh, presenting the ideas behind it, um, it it adds an extra layer um, and i think you can use that to to sort of hammer hammer out your own um, critical thinking more than than you might otherwise um so what's it so so what's the question <laughs> is, that, is that yeah no I, I rambled on too much there but is that so i mean is that something that you've you would agree with or or do you find it's 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 um something that you haven't you don't really think too much about you sit down you write something who do you write for i guess is, is part well, of the question. I, yeah, to be honest i don't think too much about it i i what um i don't think too much about um uh, audience criticism you know and i don't think too much about um um what if I got this wrong? What if I'm completely wrong? I mean, what I, when I write, uh, it's really just a, a huge exercise in introspection. Uh, so I, 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 one of the problems I have with writing, one of the difficulties I have with writing, and I have to say I, I'm not a good writer, I hate writing. I hate the process of writing. I find it enormously valuable and I love it when I've done it. Um, uh, I, I find the benefits you know, instantly. Um, right? Uh, uh, visible um, and, as I said, tangible. Um, but uh, I, I, I really don't like the process. I find it a very difficult process um, because um, quite often I find that the idea that I'm writing about, the, the hypothesis that, um, that that I kind of you know had in mind, as I start to write about it and, and, and do the analysis, I realise that, that that hypothesis is wrong, and therefore the entire kind of construct of the argument is frequently misplaced it was wrong um, uh, and so I need to figure out how to get it right and, and, and what's wrong about it and, and then so the whole process is often kind of very very kind of in fact it's nearly always um, an iterative one and um, it's very rare that I actually start out writing um, uh, a piece uh, uh, with a hypothesis in mind uh, and the hypothesis actually makes it through the piece unscathed um, so in other words that's actually quite a painful thing because you think, oh, this will, this will take me an afternoon to write, or this will take me a day to write, and then you know, four days later, you're still writing the same bloody piece, and you're thinking, oh my God, I've got this bloody rabble. And actually, and, and by this time, you're getting impatient, and you, you want to get on with your life, but, and I don't want to do this. Dylan, so isn't, that isn't, isn't that the process? That, I guess that's, you, you've explained it better than I could. Isn't that the process of, of, of working through your own thinking because you, 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 you think, okay, yeah. I have this idea, you start putting it down, and then automatically you're, criti you're criticizing it. And you're going, hang on a second, there's this, oh, there's that. And you, like four days later, what you come out with four days later is not just a different piece, but it's a different level of thinking. So right. the way that you view whatever it was that you started with is now different because you've actually brought a lot of, of energy into it. Well, and, and, and actually, you've, um, you've grown. 
right? You've actually grown. You've, you've, you now understand something uh, in a way that you, you didn't understand it before. Uh, and, gr- you know, growth, growth is usually painful. Right? <laughs> and so I find the process of writing quite painful. Um, but uh, I, can ab- you know, I can absolutely tangibly feel um, my own growth. I can feel that I understand whatever it was I've been writing with in a, in, a, in a way that I hadn't before. And so to go back to your kind of question, you know, do you worry that other people might say that? No, I don't. I, I think by the time I've actually got something that I'm, I'm happy with, I think, no, I, I'm, I'm, I, I think I'm basically right on this. And, I, and if I'm not right on it, I know where the sensitivities are. I know which parts people might disagree with because they might have different assumptions and, and they might have very reasonable different assumptions. That's kind of fine. But I, I feel that after I've written about it, I feel that I really understood it. And so when I was, when I was at the family office, you know, I, I was doing, I wasn't just thinking, I was doing, I was building um, and I was making mistakes and I was making mistakes in the portfolio. I was making mistakes in hiring. I was making mistakes in managing the team. I was making, making all sorts of mistakes, setting the wrong examples with my own behavior, all sorts of different things um, that you can only really learn by doing. But the one thing that I missed was I still wasn't, I wasn't, introspecting to the same degree the way that, 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 that I can only gen really do with with, with writing um, uh, and so 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 that's kind of, so so maybe that kind of answers your, your, uh, yeah, part of your question does. I think, I think that there was another part of your question which was interesting but the skin in the game and you know it's okay doing your own thing um, managing your own capital taking risks with your own kind of money but when you're something when you start managing other people then it kind of becomes different and I think that that's um, that's true that's something that um, that I, I think people maybe don't pay enough attention to with skin in the game or maybe the idea of skin in the game does need to be broadened out because I, I speaking from personal experience I know that I have taken a re- risk I'm, I'm not a risk a reckless risk taker at all right definitely not i i really in fact i, I don't like taking risk i don't like to invest and i really feel that I, I, you know this is I'm, I, I, you know i suppose you could say you're comfortable with a risk or I, I i don't take kind of flyers right i don't just take on i always do investing very kind of deliberatively um however i definitely invested in things without doing the kind of work that I would have done had, had I been investing other people's capital, right? Um, I've definitely taken shortcuts with my own kind of analysis, with my, with, with, with my own work. And um, to, to some degree, uh, in fact, to a large degree, investing your own money is, is easier than, than investing other people's money. Because you know, we, we're kind of, you know, you set up a kind of fund, you set up a, a vehicle and you've got friends and family's money in there. Yep. And Jesus, you, you really don't want to be losing that. You don't want to be playing games with that. You know, that's a, that's a burden. That's actually, now that focuses your mind. <laughs> that yes. gets you thinking, do I actually understand what the hell is going on? Yeah. I, I, I liken it to, um, to having children. You know, when, um, before I had children, I had me to take care of. Big deal. And, and you know, you, you think about, um, starting businesses, which is risk. You think about any any of those sorts of things, and um, uh, and it's different. And, and for some people, um, they 
you know, I had this discussion with a friend um, some years back now, um, and he was interested in, in, you know, starting up his own business. He was in our, in our field. He had worked um, as I had, as you had, uh, for large institutional companies where, you know, if you if you do a good job and you hang it out, you're going to get paid well, and you can you can stay there until you're um, old and doddery, basically, and they cart you out. And he wanted to, you know, take that leap, and that leap meant that there was obviously more risk, and then there were there were some, you know, kids were going to be born, and and he was like, oh, I need to do it, um, you know, um, I either need to do it now, and and kind of make sure that it's set up before we go and have children, or wait until I've had children, and and you know, and he's like really stuck in this whole thing, and I, and I and I realized it doesn't, it's actually a very um, it, it can affect different people different ways. So for for me, um, having children meant that I didn't want the risk of being an employee. I saw that as being a risky. I, just, I felt a lack of control. Whereas if I was the entrepreneur running my own thing, I had more control. And I felt like I had more of that risk of the downside taken care of because now I had these obligations, I had these liabilities, and they were my responsibility. And but but not everybody looks at it like that. So there's 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 different, you know, there's different things that drive you in a certain way. And you, you mentioned uh, having managing you know family and friends money. Same thing for me. Now we both know that there are people out there where they, if they're managing others' money, they're far more reckless with it. We've seen it. I mean, there's 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 movies that have been made about it and things of that nature. So um, it's uh, it, I guess the 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 answer is that there is no one size fits all um, to to that equation. But it's um, I'm grateful for your your insights into how you think about things, and um, and I think you know even just for individual investors, the relationship's important. You know, when you're sitting, you know, when I was um, when I started out as a prop trader um, for a bank. You know, I'd kind of sit on the floor and I kind of asked, you know, I used to say, where does this money come from? (laughs) Landed in my account. That's wonderful. What is it? Exactly. You know, it was just there, you know, Uh, and um, we, um, I mean, it was a kind of sign of the times. This was kind of 2003 to 2007. and it was a multi, I mean, this was, it was um, Dresdner, um, Kleinwalks was, was, was the bank. So, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a decent bank. It was a good bank. Um, Kleinwalks in particular, before Dresdner bought it, was, um, was, was one of the most kind of prestigious banks in, in the UK, um, historically, very, very um, kind of steeped in the, the kind of history of um, uh, British finance. Um, uh, Dresdner took it over. It was a big, so it was still a big bank, but it, was, it wasn't Goldman Sachs. It wasn't Morgan yeah. Stanley, second tier, frankly. But you know, we had a, um, um, a multi-billion euro book. Yeah. <laughs> right? well, it was like five or six of us, and we were all kind of punting around billions of euros, frankly, with no idea what we were doing. Um, uh, anyway, which is another sign of the times. But you know, when you ask people, where does this money come from? I don't understand. Where's it? Oh, that's this is this is this is treasury. 
Yeah, but where does that come from? What's, what's, where, where does the treasury come from? You know, uh, there was not really a clear answer. No one really mm. kind of knew it. So there was something very abstract about, you know, these kind of numbers on the screen. Yeah. Um, when you get, when you got to the family office, um, it was, it was different because, you know, we knew the family, right? Yeah. You know, we don't want to let the family down. Um, uh, obviously, if you let the family down, you get fired on a professional basis. It's not good, but it, it was more it's a different. Than, it's a different thing. It's a different this thing. Is, this is theirs. And so you felt um, a very different kind of relationship to it. And when, again, when you're managing friends and family's money, um, then it's, again, it's, 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 there is a relationship which forms the the basis of the business, really, and so you're kind of um, you, you have to be very very careful with, with with the relationship. You want to to save to safeguard protect the, the relationship, and you don't want to um, uh, you don't want to do anything that jeopardizes the trust and the faith that these people have have, have shown in you. Uh, and you don't get that when you're in a bank. And I don't well, very much that you get that when you're in. Uh, you know, BlackRock or a Fidelity, and you're in your 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 clients. It's not their money either, right? Your clients are, are agents of, of other principles, or agents of agents of agents yeah. of principles. So yeah. you just lose track of who you're actually dealing with, and that's the problem I think in, with with big finances. It's basically, it's a principal agent problem. It's Dylan. It's a it's a problem that that transcends finance. I think it's a problem <laughs> in terms of even the the structures of societies you're sitting in switzerland and switzerland has cantons mm. and each of those cantons operates relatively independently they can make their own laws and they can do all sorts of things yeah. and and exactly and and within that there is a there's a the proximity to power for individuals is far closer and the relationships are are far more intricate than they would be in a different structure. If we think about, and I'm going to go off on a tangent here. My grandmother um, is, um, grew up, well, she spent much of her adulthood in the UK. And I lived over there for about six years. And I remember her talking to me about how the police worked. And you had a bobby on the streets, okay? And that was in your lo local villages. Everybody knew who the police were and they would walk the streets and they would talk to people and, and they knew who the good families were. They knew who everybody was. When anything happened, immediately they pretty much knew it was, they, they had already consolidated in their mind uh, probabilities. And so the, so that the, the proximity to, um, to their clients essentially was, was very close and the relationships that they had with them was very close. So you have a feedback mechanism where if you knew the policeman in town and you knew you were going to do something or you were thinking about doing something that was um, illegal or would, you know, you had this, it wasn't just the fact that it was illegal to do it. You also knew that you were going to disappoint that person if they ever found out. And so that was the kind of structure. And if you think about what you have now, nobody knows you know, the policeman, the local policeman in town. It's, it's just a big corporation. So it's the same thing you think about, like mortgages. Like if, if, if you borrowed money from your auntie to buy a house, the, the chance of you defaulting is extraordinarily different to that which if you borrowed 
from Deutsche Bank, some large faceless corporation, you can quite easily just say they're a bunch of bastards and they've probably got a bunch of dodgy pop prop traders there trading their book and they're against me. And, you know, and look, we know it, it kind of happens. So, so the ability that that whole structure of society is actually quite different. Coming back to, you know, what we're talking about, that proximity to clients, I think can be, you can use it to your advantage, can be really important. And one of the things that we do at Lenorki is every single client that comes in, because we're not interested in about massive AUM, we, we, we have a phone call, at least one. We want to talk to them. We want to find out who they are. We want to determine that, that um, we're on the same page. And we just basically want to get to know who they are. Um, and yeah. um, so, and I feel like we've kind of, we've gone very far down the end of, of um, massive asset aggregation and allocation. Um, and the proximity for, for of people, investors, to who's managing their capital, where it's sitting, has been so severely disconnected over the years. That um, and and then there's an ability for you know um, for asset managers to not. Um, it's just it's just capital. It's like, where did it come from? Oh, it, 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 it was an allocation from some faceless pension fund. That was an allocation from some faceless um, multifamily office, or whatever the case might be. There's no, so, so when you sit down and you're allocating your net capital, you're not thinking about, as you do, as I do, like the family and, the, the family and friends that you start off with, which is how we normally start these things, right? Because then you're, you're sitting there and you're going, should I know all these people? <laughs> and I, you know, I, I need to, I need to, I, I really don't want to fuck this up. So, um, I think, yeah, I, the, the, I think the kind of principle here that ties it all together with your kind of example of the, of the kind of local policeman and the example of the way the Swiss, um, uh, run their country, um, you know, with, with very local politics and very local decision making. The principle is that the decisions, the closer the decision is to the consequences of that decision, the better. Um, and so I, I think that, um, I mean, I remember when I first came to Switzerland, the, you know, there, there was, there was a, because this, the, the Swiss, they vote all the time, right? And, you know, people don't fully understand. People talk about democracy and people talk about, um, uh, you know the, the strength and power of democracy and the you know the americans bring democracy trying to bring democracy to the middle east um it's a very dysfunctional democracy most countries have an incredibly dysfunctional democracy you know the two-party system in america is um almost kind of farcical you're looking at trump versus biden what kind of choice is that right you know some kind of um uh, mean-spirited, uneducated, narcissistic bully against the guy who's got dementia, yeah. right? These are, these are, this, that's your choice. That's the model, right? So that, that's a farce. Before that, it was Trump versus Clinton, um, which is equally farcical. The UK is kind of the same. You know, we yeah. just got this two-party system, right? So I prefer that to, you know, Russia or China, you know, but it's, it's, there's the, you could really improve it enormously um, if you studied the, the Swiss system. 
Um, and for me, Switzerland is the only country that I'm aware of, at least, that actually has real democracy, right? So, like, in the, in the, not just the canton, but the, the municipality that I lived in, um, which is like a couple of thousand people, um, they wanted to build a, a, a new sports centre. And so the leaders of the, the, um, the, the, the community um, put, put it out to, to, to the community. The, the, a, they made the case for a new sports centre, right? A, we need it. B, this is how much it's going to cost. And C, this is who's going to oversee it, right? And they then voted on it, yeah. right? And they, they, they agreed, the, the municipality agreed that they would pay an extra few hundred francs a year to cover the costs for the next three years, to cover the costs of yeah. this new sports club, right? And then that would be that. And then the tax would, right? So there was a, there was a very, very precise yeah. vote, right? This is, how much, this is what we want. This is how much it's going to cost. This is going to be the tax burden, the, the additional tax burden that's implied. And this is how long that additional tax burden will be, will be active for. Right now, do we want to do this or don't we want to do this? Right, and this was only which by the way meant that, that my municipality had a slightly higher tax rate than the neighboring one. For, for, but for then you're getting, but then you're, you're, you're having a different municipality because that one has a sports ground and the other ones presumably do not, or that's one that's maybe 15 20 years old. This is purely local decision making, yeah. Right now, if you ask these people, in other words, people who are voting on this have access to better information. For example, do we need a local yeah. sports center? There's one just down the road. Why can't we yeah. just use that? Okay, that's important, that information. Um, uh, actually, there's no kids around. Who the hell needs a new sports center, right? Again, this is, or, or actually, on the contrary, no, we really, really need it. Okay, so I create all that into a collective opinion, and that will take advantage of, high, of, of good information, right? And therefore, the decision has been made with good information in a way that it wouldn't if it was being made in Brussels. Yeah. Right? And you had to write a grant application. And, right? and, and look, we, we, we know this we know this system, right? Because um, if if the alternative worked, you and I would be speaking Russian. Yeah, right. And yeah. And, and yet you see this this um, this consolidation of, of power um, that takes place in, in many countries and it and it keeps consolidating. Um, but you know, Switzerland I think is a wonderful example. You could say there are some negatives to it, and sure there are, but what you know, the, 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 one of the things um, in terms of systems, and this, um, this is actually a, a phenomenon I came across some time back um, from a friend of mine over in Australia. We looked at um, various systems in nature and those which, which survived. And so in order to survive, you, you needed to essentially have, this is a rough metric, about two-thirds of, of a system that was very very robust to external exogenous um, uh, negative impulses or negative impacts and the one third needed to be um, growth or needed to be innovation and so if you think about innovative companies you can you can be super super innovative and you can grow at an absolutely exponential rate right Think okay, so we work. I know we work as a bit of a fuck up, but but it, essentially we work grew ridiculously quickly because they were somewhat innovative. I mean, it was was kind of fraudulent finance. The whole the whole structure, but didn't really make sense um, in terms of you know how it was done. But they they were certainly innovative and they grew very very quickly. But they had no fundamental um, robust 
structure whereby if anything negative came along in that market, i.e. a lack of financing, i.e. Uh, I mean, COVID would have shut them down anyway, even if, the, if they had kind of died before that, but, but they didn't have that, that structure. So, but then you have a company or, or a structure, which is very, very much uh, robust, if you will, but it isn't, it doesn't have enough innovation. It can get run over by innovation. So if you think about Kodak, you know, it had, it had, it had all of the, the structure because it, it was by all um, standards visibly, you would have said that's something that's going to survive. Maybe it's not going to, it's, it's, you know, it's not going to um, become the, you know, maybe even larger, but yeah, it'll be around in the next 10, 20 years. But then you had this ex exogenous force, which came along and, um, and because they didn't have any enough innovation and any ability to actually tackle and change, they died. And you have that sort of, that sort of thing taking place time and again. And so when you think about Switzerland and the cantons, they've got, um, they've got this flexibility, right? Um, which does impede if they wanted to grow out and, and build a massive rail network all around the country. That's pretty difficult because now you've got to have a con you've got to get all these different municipalities on board and, and it takes a lot more. That's where a centralized system such as China has, can, they can go out and they can build whatever the hell they please. Because if someone just you know someone doesn't like having a um, a train track coming through their yard, too fucking bad, you know they just push it through. Um, but but over time that decentralized approach. I mean, if if you think about country structures, Switzerland's kind of like the Bitcoin of <laughs> of um, uh, or the blockchain of of you know um, democratic systems because it has this decentralized approach which allows a lot of flexibility yeah it's i mean it's slow it's slower to move you know i think that one of the cantons because you, you don't get the same it's, a, it's something i think of a lot it's very very interesting you know um the kind of centralization versus decentralization i i i think the decentralization works for all sorts of reasons um, um mainly because it allows bad ideas to fail Right, and that's that's the kind of that's the kind of fun, the fundamental algorithm of life is to repeat what works. Yeah. And uh, if you have kind of, you know a whole bunch of different ideas kind of playing out in, in kind of reality, um, uh, and uh, you know inevitably some of those ideas will work and some of them won't. Um, and um, uh, the ones that don't die, and the ones that, that that do succeed and continue and are replicated and are copied. And and, and this is you know that's. A, you need to have a decentralized, you need to have a whole bunch of experiments, a whole bunch of simulations before you can actually um, optimize, before you can select the, the winner, if you like, or before the winner actually wins. Um, I guess the kind of, the, 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 the kind of conundrum is uh, what happens when the winner is actually um, uh, centralization, right? Uh, and so what happens when, uh, you know, if you've got, for example, you know, historically in, 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 um, in Europe, um, uh, uh, Switzerland was always kind of at risk because it was it would struggle to compete with highly organized and centralized neighbors, you know, like France right, or Spain, for example. Um, uh, and so at what point, you know, right now we're seeing it with China, you know, yeah. China might not be a kind of great place to live. It might not be particularly um, ultimately robust or, or, or stable given this kind of one-party system, but 
um, they can mobilize incredibly quickly and incredibly powerfully. And, you know, maybe that is actually, you know, that can be the dominant strategy at times, right? Just yeah. kind of suppress the experimentation, to, 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 to suppress the decentralization, to centralize, to harness all of your um, resources for one, for one battle and for one victory. And so, you know, you can be very, you can be, you can do all sorts of things when you harness power centrally. Um, and one of the things you can do is, um, is, 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 is mobilize aggression. Right, and so what? what so what's what's the kind, of, and therefore the, the most aggressive, organized, centralized state can dominance. actually dominate all the others, right? So, it's the, I, I think that th there has to be a kind of balance between centralization, decentralization, and I think that this is one of the things that um, that the uh, the cryptocurrency guys don't really, uh, to my to my mind, I think that they maybe don't fully appreciate. I think that there is a which is very, very commendable, very, very laudable, but they do have a fetish of decentralization. And, you know, we live in Switzerland. There was a, there was a, we used to live in Zug, which was Crypto, Crypto Valley, as it's called, because they, they actually, um, they had a lot, I mean, the Ethereum Foundation was based there. ETH, ETH was conceived um, in Zug, I believe. Um, uh, my wife actually runs her own um, cryptocurrency um, uh, company. She was one of the first ICOs in, in, in Switzerland. So we had kind of first... We had um, kind of first-hand experience, or we had front-row seats to the whole ICO bubble and bust. Um, we're still very, very active in that space right now. Um, and uh, one of the things that really strikes me is this, this fetish of decentralization. And, and you're seeing the, the problems with, um, with, 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 with radical decentralization with, with Ethereum right now. I think Ethereum, you know, this might be a little bit kind of niche, but um, uh, I mean, I'm assuming everyone knows what Ethereum is, and I'm assuming everyone knows what ETH is, right? Well, so if they don't, they can certainly Google it, and there's this enormous amount of it's information. It's kind of like Bitcoin. If Ether is the same as, it's basically like Bitcoin, except you can program Ether. Around it, right? Yeah. It's actually programmable money, right? So you can actually, you can make, and Bitcoin, I can send you a transaction. Okay, fine. You can, I can send you Bitcoin. That's a transaction. That gets validated. You know, it's been peer-to-peer -peer transfer of value. Fine. You can do exactly the same thing using Ether or any cryptocurrency. With Ether, though, I could send you um, some, some, some Ether, some, some money, conditional on a particular event, right? So we would then program this, this money only to transfer to you if, say, your house got burgled. Right, and then it would be right, and then and then it would be an insurance contract. Right, so we can program this money, and this is this is a, actually a very kind of interesting idea. Um, and as you can imagine, the kind of the network and the um, uh, the, the the requirements of this um, this this Ethereum network and the maintenance of this blockchain, making it secure, making it stable, this does require some kind of money to encourage people to build on it, to give them the tools they need to build on it. It requires, in other words, it needs some centralization. It needs some centralized guidance. But nobody wants to do this. And Vitalik. Um, you know who is the face of of, um, uh, of, of uh, Ethereum as one of the co kind of co-founders really really shies away from giving it this kind of direction because he doesn't want because being this, the face of Ethereum being this kind of centralized leading some kind of centralized authority into where Ethereum should go what it should be is kind of anathema to the entire decentralized ethos and so the whole to my mind the whole platform is struggling it's crying out for some leadership right you know, it's it's just here's the thing that happens and you know societies go through cycles markets go through cycles just as we go from a massive bull market where 
shit doesn't make any sense. Dot com, uh, venture capital, recent, uh, doesn't matter what sector you want to look at. We've, we've been through these. It can go through massive bear markets where, again, things just don't make any sense. And, and in the same light, um, you know, uh, people, societies have gone, you know, fully Marxist, for example, back towards, um, uh, you know, uh, repealing that and saying you know, we don't want that and going to different structures and and essentially whatever your past is if you've, if it's been if it's been successful you think oh we'll do more of that but sometimes there's a tipping point where more is not better yeah and and sometimes less is not better either and so you know we, we're talking about centralized structures and if you think about central banks around the world the fact that they're called central banks actually now is, is just makes even more sense than it ever did before because they're much more centralized. They have a much more, a more impactful um, in the global economy than they have been. Much more involved in, in private decision making. Well, I mean, if we just look at the ECB, they're, they're buying up um, a whole lot of corporate debt, you know, because nobody else wants it and they're trying to prop up that market. And, and so the decentralized uh, capitalistic approach which we which we started with like is post is from post Bretton Woods was you let the market figure it out let the individuals figure it out much in the same way with the, with the Swiss they go let the cantons figure it out if they want to build a park fucking let them build a park if they don't don't and so so there was that decentralized approach and so you know that's how we began things and then it's become more and more centralized and and we've seen the the cracks in that, and so the 08 crisis was um, was with that centralized. And look, we had we've had instances of it before. LTCM of the Russian ruble collapse. It showed that you have, if you had this sort of centralized um, concentration of risk, it could it could cause um, a destabilization of the entire system. Hence the bailouts and so on and so forth. And then 08, we had we had 08 was LTCM on steroids, yeah. And so you had this 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 consolidated, um, centralized risk um, taking place, which sort of has its benefits. Why? Because you can mobilize quickly and and so on and so forth. But it 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 means that you are at risk of exogenous events. Whereas a deep, uh, a decentralized system um, allows, you know, less risk, and so it's not, I think, a, co- a coincidence that uh, Bitcoin, for example, was, as far as we can tell, was coded after the 08 crisis. Where they're like, okay, that, that's, that's the devil. How do we come about with something completely opposite? Which is, how, but, yeah. but the idea that the opposite is the holy grail is, I think, where. Um, Crypto or Bitcoin maximalists—they—they um, they, they go too far as well. You know, life isn't like that. There's, there is. Well, I mean, the, the the whole point about you know we already said you know you know the, the biological computation works, evolutionary computation works because it discards the stuff that doesn't work, right, and and therefore selects the stuff that does work. So the whole thing is based on failure, right? And sometimes those failures are painful, you know? So a world without failure doesn't exist, you know? So right. a holy grail where nobody suffers, it cannot exist, right? It can't. And um, because you're now going against, frankly, you're going against the grain of 
if you want to get right down to it, you're going against the, against the grain of physics. Yes. Right. You know, if not, you're kind of you're you're starting to try and break physical laws. There will be no failure. No, that's not consistent with the laws of physics. So I, I think. And when we and when we try and do that on a societal level, it it is always turned into the worst that humanity has to offer. And when we do it now in. If you want to try and this is something that you know, I, I think my you know, my my mom is a rabid, unreconstructed socialist, massive trade union, militant trade unionist. You know, for her, Jeremy Corbyn was um, wasn't left wing enough, right? I mean, she doesn't talk to me, she doesn't talk about me to her friends because she's embarrassed, right? That her son is a hedge fund manager, right? What kind of you know, what kind of social <laughs> what deals is a socialist, right? <laughs> um, uh, but, uh, you know, which is kind of interesting, right? Because, I, you know, on all sorts of kind of um, levels. But the thing that I, I feel that she doesn't understand and, and other socialists and even people who see themselves as quite kind of um, uh, uh, free market, you don't understand that when you want to try and um, impose equality, when you want to try and impose an outcome on, you know, a market outcome, um, because you don't like the free market outcome, you only try and impose one that you think is better, that requires a machinery, right? It requires some kind of machinery um, to impose that. In other words, it implies that you grant to an authority the power to coerce. Right, you 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 grant a higher authority the power to coerce and more equal outcome, and therefore, because you've because the only way you can achieve this equal outcome is by granting power to someone to coerce, then you've just created a new type of inequality. Yeah. Right. And so the whole machine. And now the more um, um, uh, equality you want, the more coercion, the more coercive power is required and therefore the greater the inequality will be in it's, it's interesting because one of the things that, that sorry go on you never solve the equality problem you cannot solve it right you just create a different type of inequality and i think this is what the socialists don't understand and that's why the soviet union went the way the soviet union went and that's why north korea is the way north korea is north korea is not an equal society because all the power is concentrated in the hands of the party right well, if one of the things, and um, I've been talking a lot um, to to our head trader Brad about this recently. If if I go back and I think about what is it that made Western civilization the civilization, at least for our livelihoods, I would say I would suggest that one of the predominant factors in that has been science. And so, if we think about a scientific method, it is that you have a theory, and and you have the ability to know that it could be wrong. And so you have a theory and you put it out there. It could be a test tube and you're going to put a bit of mercury with a bit of, I don't know, something else. And you, you have the theory that something's going to happen, whatever that, that theory is. And then you say, okay, let's test it. And you either validate it or you invalidate it. And you go, oh, I thought that would happen. Shit, that didn't happen. Okay. Theory's wrong. Scrap it. Let's keep going. And you keep, and, 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 and then you bring the hive mind to that. Right? So you test it because you go, oh, Chris just tried this. He put a bit of mercury in with a bit of lead and like, you know, like nothing happened. So I'm going to try something else. And you, you have thousands of people all working on this theory. 
and eventually you come up with I don't know penicillin <laughs> whatever it is right and but that 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 ability to um, to to acknowledge that we don't know and to have an environment where we can have freedom of thought and freedom of expression to find what does work and let that which works succeed and let that which doesn't work die. That is how you get exponential growth. And so as soon as we impede that, then we impede the entire process. If you think about capital formation, you cannot have capital formation without the ability to do that. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, I think that um, you know your your basic your your. I think one of the things that's kind of become clear, which is something that fascinates me, um, that's but something that I think has become clear in science over maybe the last twenty or thirty years, is that um, you know this kind of idea that information is actually the information is actually the. The, um, the the most kind of fundamental um, um, thing in the universe. It's not matter. <laughs> it's not matter and energy. It's information. You know, it's even more kind of fundamental than than than, than, than that. Uh, and ultimately, everything is about information processing. You know, so you know, life um, is very much about information processing. You know, we are organic information processors, you know, our, our, our behavior is encoding our, in our DNA. Um, and we are the product of a kind of genetic algorithm. Um, and that genetic algorithm self selects the stuff that works, you know, and works in inverted commas, right? Um, now you can use genetic algorithms and, and you know, computer scientists use genetic, I think there's bloody one in the Microsoft Excel solver, right? You can use this genetic algorithm to optimize, right? So it is an optimization algorithm, the genetic algorithm. Um, and there's this kind of idea that actually, you know, the, the universe is just doing the same thing. The universe is actually an information processor. Um, so everything is an information processor, right? Including an economy or a business or an enterprise, right? We're, we're doing it right now. We're exchanging information. We're exchanging ideas right now. Um, uh, if you try to eliminate, uh, so the, the basis of that information processing and of that um, evolutionary algorithm is failure, right? If you try to weed out failure, you're starving the computer of the information that it needs, right? And so you will not optimize in inverted commas and then anything like as efficiently as you would if you permitted failure you will not get as good an outcome and so the problem i think with them um, with kind of central planning uh, is exactly that you don't you don't have the information you know you're starving the system with the information that it needs to compute and that information um, is I often think it's very, yeah it's, absolutely that's information for sure that's absolutely Which, kind of information which is one of the things that distresses me so much about the education system as it is today. That, you know, we don't we don't celebrate failure with with um, in, in the schools or in the universities. It should be celebrated. You know, that, like because you can't have success without failure and multiple failure, right? You know, you think about a guy like you know Tiger Woods, who was um, is probably the most uh, successful golfer of all time. Like the, the reason, one of the reasons that he's such a successful golfer, presumably you know, over and above his genetic abilities and so on and so forth, is that he's failed so many times. You know, just just 
yeah. over and over and over and over. So she's just, so there's one individual, one one within a species that's that's succeeded extraordinarily well. As but but you know, and so the word and this is even a socialist issue is like when when they see that they go, well, we want that, but we don't want the we don't want the failure. And we've seen this, for example, in the universities. One of the things which I've been writing about for the last two three years is this this incredible danger that has, that comes with rights. You know, oh, my, you're, you're affecting my rights. My rights, my rights, my rights. And I was like, well, hang on a second. You don't have any rights without responsibility. You can't have the, the two. Don't they? Don't you know? They're not mutually exclusive. So, how can you have your rights are somebody else's responsibility? You go, oh, I want human rights. Well, like, what does that mean? Oh, it means that you have safety in your house. Well, how does that come about? Oh, well, that's a police force, for example. Well, that's a responsibility. It's a person who's got to get up every day and like he's got to, you know, train and, and so on and so forth. And so, um, you know, the, the, there's a pervasive, and, and I guess that's Marxism. If you look at Marxist ideology, um, it's one where responsibilities um, don't exist to the extent that they should, but there's all these rights. And, and that's, it's myopic and it's dangerous. Um, and if we think about the markets today, isn't that really what we're doing with, with the central banks? You know, nobody can fail. We don't want failure. Uh, yeah, I, I, um, yeah, I, I basically, yeah, basically, I, I, I agree with that. You know, um, I mean, the, the kind of irony is pain is, pain is a very uh, important thing, right? Pain is, you know, is the transmission of information. Um, uh, I, I, of important information, you know, pain is what tells you not to put your hand in a fire, right? Um, uh, so it's it's a very very kind of protective thing, but we, obviously we, we we don't like it. We we try to avoid it, right? That's that's how it works. So the kind of irony is that you take that to to the extreme, and you can do yourself damage. You know, if you allow yourself to be um, subject to kind of you know micro stresses, you know, so if you run a cold shower and stand in a cold shower for a couple of minutes every day. Um, it's not much fun. It's not particularly pleasant, um, you know, uh, but it's but it's good for you. If you sit in a, you know, which, you know, we're kind of lucky enough to live by a lake um, in the winter, I kind of go in the lake every day uh, and it's kind of, you know, four or five degrees. Now, if I was to stay in that lake for, for, for an hour, I would probably die of hypothermia. I would drown. But if I sit in there for five minutes, um, it's, um, it doesn't kill me. And what happens is physiologically, it actually, there are a number of benefits. Yep. You know, so this, um, all sorts of kind of benefits in terms of your immune system, white blood cells, because your body actually starts to harness its, um, it. It gains from the information that you're giving it. It feeds off the information that you're giving it, and it actually starts to build up resistance. And that resistance is incredibly beneficial to your, um, uh, to your health, to your longevity. It's the same with, with fasting, right? If you don't eat, if you, go, if you just allow yourself to go hungry for, for, um, for a period of time. Saunas, if you actually sit in an inc incredible heat for time. All of these kind of micro stresses, they might be unpleasant, but they're phenomenally good for you. Yes. And I feel this is, is, this is hormesis. And this is, I think, the role of recessions. This is the role of yes. allowing people to really have the, you know, to, to, to effectively to feel the pain of their mistakes, right? Because it's feeling the pain of your mistakes, knowing that your mistakes will actually involve some pain that makes you better, hopefully, at not making those mistakes in the future, right? And therefore, it strengthens everyone. 
it's actually good. So allowing, again, we go back to the same point, allowing people to fail is important. The Federal Reserve Central Bank's policymakers' instincts is to prevent that pain. Um, and I think in the near term, that's a, that obviously that's 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 a, that's a good thing, right? Um, but in the in, in the in the medium to long term, it's difficult to see how it can possibly be a good thing. You're, you're weakening the overall immune system by doing it. Yeah. And yeah. And, and and what you're doing is you create you're you're creating a, a system which is is um, there's two things. One is the feedback mechanism in that the participants in that system. Um, look to the recent past to identify what the future looks like. So we look to 2008, we go, they solved the problem. We look to the LTCM crisis, we go, ah, they solved the problem. Oh wait, solve the problem. Now we're in 2020 and they're like, they say they're gonna solve the problem. And so everybody believes it. And at some point, and, and then maybe it's possible, maybe it's right, but at some point what you have is such a weakened immune system and the, the, the virus, if you will, that comes along, overwhelms it and it's impossible for it to actually deal with it whereas if it had gone through so if you think about that like as, as kids we grow up crawling around on the floor i think we're probably designed to crawl why because you put shit in your mouth you lick the floor like that's what babies do what they're doing is yeah. they're they're building yeah. their immune system right well, they're also they're learning. and 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 so you try and take all of that away and, and you're immediately, I mean, that's why little kids always got snotty noses and that, like they're picking up every virus, every bug, but what they're doing is their body's just building antibodies to it. Boom, 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 boom. And that's why, you know, um, we don't get sick from when, when our kids are, uh, you know, getting sick. We don't get it. Why? We've got the antibodies. You know, we've built it. But now if you took a child and you didn't allow any of that, gave them this pristine environment where they can't get anything, and you get them to like 20 years of age and you just send them off into the world and they go off to Delhi. <laughs> like, holy shit. They don't have any ability to cope with, with, um, with this, this absolute deluge of, of viruses and, um, and things that are going to attack its system. And so essentially that that's how I'm thinking about what we've got in terms of the, the market and structure and environment that we've got today. We've kept, We've tried to create this pristine environment and every time a virus has come along we've said no 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 we're going to take care of it we'll walk it off we'll shield it off we got your back and and then the market participants act accordingly where they go okay cool we we believe that that's that's true and and it creates an absolutely asymmetric setup um where you know if i look at the markets i don't know what what it is that you're particularly interested in. I'm curious to know that we can dig into it in a bit, but um, there is so, you know, coming back to what we talked about before, managing family and friends' money, I sit there and I'm like, I don't want to lose anyone money. And, and then I work through the various asset classes of like, what, what, what is it that you'd buy? And like I had a friend just the other day and he's like, I think I'm just going to put, put, put some money in money market. Um, a money market fund because I, you know, I want it safe and I was like well you know if you put it in t-bills for cash it's like nah I, I can get another one percent and I'm like okay you can get one more percent by putting it in money market fund and money market funds nowadays based on on you know the fact that central banks have pushed yields you know uh, to fairly absurd levels mean that meaning that the returns are really paltry 
Um, we've got the structure now where a lot of these money market funds is just basically going into the repo market, and and you're funding you're funding the Deutsche Banks of the world, right? <laughs> and and it, and you've got this sort of absurd environment even where the the least risky assets within the commercial paper market, one could argue that they just need to be of size and they need to have access to credit. And so if they've got access to credit and they've got size, two things are going to happen. They're probably going to get bailed out and or you know, the, the, the credit available to them will, will continue to flow because they're too... Um, too risky to fall over, and so you you know you could you could look at um, some institutions which are smaller, probably more uh, better capitalized, um, but they don't have any any political leanings or or um, connections. They're not going to receive any bailouts, and um, and then you look at the the larger institutions which which almost certainly will and. You know, there's there's a decent argument to say, well, those would be the ones that you should actually be lending money to. But essentially, so the market lands up pushing capital towards those which are not in a in a in a world science those interventions or science that structure, they would um, they would be forced to fail. Um, and so, you know, what we're talking about with the with that structure of the, the, allowing things to fail so that, the, so that the genetics can come through has been interfered with in the, in the capital markets. And so I'm sitting there like, okay, like, what is it that you actually, where do you, where do you hide in a world where uh, bonds or if you're going on the sovereign side of things, um, you're either at, you know, if you're going into bonds, you're losing money. Well, like on a yield basis, um, and the only reason you're going to get money back is if somebody pays um, more for the bond. Um, you go down the commercial paper or like or, or corporate debt markets. Uh, there's some stuff there, but again, all of that is actually impacted by the whole structure of the of the um, uh, of the of the bond market. In such that that you know that hunt for yield has meant that anything that actually looked reasonable. Um, while it might have healthy balance sheets and everything else, is now not yielding you very much at all, yet you are still taking risk. Um, and, and, you know, I kind of work down these various sectors and um, it's an extraordinary time um, in terms of, like, I think there's less to invest in. I feel like there's far less to invest in than there has been in, the, in, in my career. You know, that I've... That I've how, how are you looking at the market what are you what are, what are you interested in uh so that's another big question <laughs> uh i think the, 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 the simple answer is uh, we're finding plenty of things to invest in um i think there are plenty of things to invest in i think um uh, uh as i as a statement before kind of um um maybe the before kind of giving a detailed answer, I, I, I think it's kind of interesting, an interesting observation is this, um, and this relates to what you were saying earlier um, about the cheapness of financing, the negative yields on, on government bonds and government paper, and how that's distorting everything else. 
Um, I think, um, by the way, I think there's some kind of interesting numbers you can crunch the questions, the extent to which risk is mispriced, um, uh, believe it or not, okay? Um, which, you know, we don't have to kind of go into right now. Um, but all I would say is, um, I'm not sure that the markets are as distorted as is commonly made out. Okay, that's, so that's, that's one thing to say. I'm not saying that they're not, I'm not, but I'm not saying that they are either, right? I think that it's just, when you look carefully at various risk premia, risk, you know, risk premia defined as excess spread or coupon or expected return versus government bonds, Yes. Right? When you look at these risk premia, what you find is... On, the, on a relevant basis, I agree, 100%. But as I suppose, suppose you say, you know, but I know I kind of have the, kind of, um, the, the, the actual kind of numbers up um, uh, in front of me right now, but if you look at um, the, the spread of, say, high yield um, over treasuries right now, it's well within its historical range, right? Now, if you look at the performance of high yield since the Fed made its announcement, you can see that it's gone through the roof. And you look at the year-to-date performance of high yield, you might say this should be much lower. You know, we're down, you know, what, 10%. But we're, 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 like we're within those parameters, yeah. Let's just say this kind of hypothesis, central banks are distorting risk pricing in markets. Suppose that's true. We would expect to see very, very compressed risk spreads. Right, and I don't think we do. Risk spreads are roughly in line with the historical. Now, you might say that the oh, but they're too tight. Okay, fine, they're too tight, but they're within their historical range. They have been significantly tighter, right? And you might say, yeah, but we're about to face this huge wipeout and this huge. Okay, fine, right? Um, but um, uh, how bad is that going to be? We, we, you know, we're not quite sure. You know, we don't know, frankly. We don't know what the kind of fallout is going to be. So what I'm saying is it's just not necessarily obvious, right? So that's a, I think that this is kind of something that's important to, to make. Now, in terms of the overall, you know, what, what keeps the absolute yield low, so now we're talking about the absolute yield, the absolute return, the absolute expected return, rather than the excess return. These are incredible because government bond yields are low, right? Yep. Fine. So we might say that actually capital market yields are very, very low. Right, um, and we might also say that they seem far too low, right? Given where nominal GDP, goes. and this is the this is the distortion that the central banks have created. And again, I think that there's, there's probably some truth to, to that part of the argument. Um, I think that the second part, though, which is interesting, is this: suppose you don't have access to capital markets. What kind of return? What kind of what kind of interest do you have to pay if you want to borrow? Right, because you're not going to borrow one or two percent. Yeah. We don't get to right? do that. If you don't have Right, and so some of the, I know some kind of um, uh, some managers, some some very interesting kind of credit managers that um, uh, that, that, that we talk to um, and that we, that we invest in, and their niche is actually effectively they're just doing what the banks used to do. They're lending to individuals, to small businesses, um, with good collateral, with good credit worthiness. Um, uh, uh, and they're lending at double-digit rates. Yep, right? that's what I'm saying. So there's yep. a huge bifurcation, right? A massive bifurcation. Do you have access to capital markets? Yeah. Oh, in that case, you can borrow for like a you know a couple of percent. Have you got a really crappy credit rating? Oh, you can borrow for nine percent. Whereas if you're small, too small to have access to credit markets, 
Um, uh, but you've got, you know, and I'll give you one example, no names mentioned, but one example of speaking to this, um, at the, uh, the, the, the fund that I, that I know. Um, and um, one of their um, uh, uh, clients is um, a, a serial entrepreneur. He's made um, an awful lot of, he's done very, very well for himself. He's made a lot of money for himself. Uh, and, um, you know, mainly in um, uh, aircraft parts. The aircraft parts business is a kind of interest. So if you know the different aircraft parts, right, you can source these aircraft parts, right? You know, planes last for like 30, 40 years, right? The problem is not necessarily the engine. The problem is sometimes finding the spare parts for the engine, finding the spare parts for the, for the plane. Sometimes these spare parts can go for incredible amounts of value if you know how to price them, right? And this is, what this guy, this is where this guy has, um, uh, has, has made his money. Um, so, so this um, friend of mine, this manager friend of mine, uh, hedge fund manager friend of mine says, this, this guy's got um, uh, uh, assets, personal assets worth about 40 million, right? And this includes um, a house in, um, uh, in uh, you know, uh, prime part, luxury part of Los Angeles, right? Um, uh, worth about 10 million, right? Completely unencumbered. Totally unencumbered, right? It needs a five million loan, right? So they give him a five million loan, twelve months, something like twelve percent, fully collateralized by the guy's house, right? Now that, that's a great bit of business. Why are the banks not doing it? Well, because they can, because of Basel requirements of the, yeah. because they have to set aside too much capital. Frankly, they can't be bothered to, to write such a small ticket, five million. It's not what it's just not worth it. They're not going to be right. Um, so, so this guy basically falls through the cracks. He doesn't have access to capital markets, but he's in a, so he's paying basically, you know, you know kind of double digit. Um, uh, and it, presumably, this guy's an entrepreneur. He knows what he's doing. He knows what the value of his project is. That, whatever the double digit um, uh, interest rate is, is totally fine for him. He can pay that and still make a very, very tidy return on his entrepreneurial project, right? Yeah. So that 12% or whatever it is, that 12% interest rate is absolutely fine. That's not where you get in the capital markets. So there's this huge distortion, I think massive distortion, which is visible when you look at the interest rates that people are actually paying in the kind of direct lending markets, right? It just doesn't bear any resemblance to what you can get in the capital markets. So I think that, that so that's the first thing, right? That's very clear evidence of the distortion, in my opinion, right? And the unintended consequence, right? You're protecting big borrowers, right? At the expense of little borrowers, right? Because it might be- it, it, it's, a crowding, it's a crowding out of the markets. This entrepreneur can easily pay his um, uh, 12%, but at the margin, there might be entrepreneurs with slightly less um, robust businesses are slightly less, but still attractive, right? Yeah. But those guys get squeezed out. So these are the entrepreneurs which are being squeezed out of the market because you're funding Deutsche Bank at these prices, right? Yeah. So that's absolutely kind of happening. Now, in terms of your question, where, um, where do you invest? Well, that's actually already a good starting point, right? If you look hard enough, you can actually supply capital on sensible terms to get a sensible um, uh, return. There's also other parts, I think, of the capital markets um, which are off the beaten track, which are actually quite interesting and where you can still get a decent return, which are less distorted. Um, uh, you know, and I, so I, 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 I think that, you know, our kind of hedge fund is, is um, going to be a, a fund of funds. Our kind of thing really is just investing in very, very niche strategies. We're very, very kind of um, um, uh, uh, off the run strategies and, and off the run managers. And this obviously has the kind of benefit of being very, very uncorrelated to the broader equity markets. 
Um, but you can also get very, very kind of, you can build a very, very diverse portfolio of these kind of niche, niche strategies. And so we're seeing, I think, quite kind of interesting opportunities um, and, you know, in these types of uh, places. So some kind of direct lending, you know, I, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's, there's, I, I, I don't think, you know, I, it's not been a problem for us finding interesting investment opportunities. Right. And tell me, so what you were just discussing is essentially in the private private markets, right? Um, is much of what you're doing in publicly listed stuff or is it? Is it yeah, I mean, actually, our, our focus is at the moment is very much on the liquid part of the um, uh, the market, right? You know, because I, I know that stuff. That's what I've been. I've done my entire career um, when I when I built um, the the um, uh, that kind of liquid part of the business for the family office. It was all it was all liquid. It was all highly liquid. Yeah. So our fund will be twelve months. We won't be able to invest in any funds which which, which can't offer twelve month liquidity. But when I say they can't offer twelve month liquidity, they can't legitimately offer twelve. I know there's plenty of funds out there who will offer you weekly or monthly liquidity, and they just they shouldn't be doing that. But they the bid ask is is not like two or three yeah. years. Closed end structure. It's just, well, you know, Neil Woodford, I think, actually, in the UK, I don't know if you kind of followed this in, 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 in your part of the world. Neil Woodford was a very, was a kind of star. Yeah, I, I, star I, You know all about him, right? Yeah. Um, and he had a literally a daily daily liquidity in his vehicle. I think it was daily liquidity. And he had like 20% or 10%, 15%, far too much, because it was non-zero, um, uh, invested in stuff that was, that was illiquid. Right, you know, there was no market for it, and what happened was when people started to redeem, there was a run on the fund, and yep. the guys who trusted them, the guys who backed them, the guys who like Neil Woodford, you know, he's, he knows what he's doing. This is this is a good guy. They are the guys who got gated in the end. They are the guys who left carrying all this illiquid shit that had no mark, um, yep. and the reason for that is because Woodford missold liquidity. So when I talk about the liquidity that we want from a manager, it has to it can't be missold. It has to be legitimate, genuine liquidity. Yep. Of course, you know, the assumption that we can do that, and, and we can, um, we can't invest in, in, in closed-end vehicles, not at the moment. It's something that we'd like to do, you know, hopefully in a couple of years' time. We think we know how to, um, but it's, it's not what we're doing right now. So this is very much liquid markets, um, not necessarily securities, right? When you've got short-term lending that rolls off, or, you know, direct, direct loans. There's no market price for those loans, but they, you know, they repay in 60 days or 90 days. So there's a kind of natural kind of roll off to the book, yeah. right? So you, it's absolutely legitimate to have, say, 90 day liquidity for a, for a, um, a private lending fund. Yeah. Um, you can get the same thing with litigation finance, um, uh, for example. You know, we like insurance. We like the insurance markets. We like life, various parts of the life insurance markets, various parts of the catastrophe um, uh, insurance markets. Um, and then there's some kind of, you know, the, then there's more traditional hedge funds, you know, believe it or not, there are still hedge funds out there who are hedging. There are still hedge funds who um, are genuinely uncorrelated uh, from, uh, from, from broader markets. Um, they're not just kind of over, overpricing their beta. Um, so we're invested in, uh, in some of those guys. Some of those guys, for example, in convertible arbitrage, there's some very, you know, it's making a comeback. It's a very interesting space. Um, systematic trading um, uh, for all of the the kind of overcrowdedness of the of the big trend followers, the the you know the the, the Wintons, the aspects. There's an awful lot of stuff at the 200, 300, 400 million dollar AUM. There's a lot of talent. There's a lot of very very talented 
um, uh, uh, algo traders um, uh, 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 with with very very decent track records. Um, no, and they know exactly how to. And they're not too big for their for their for their alpha opportunity. Um, so you know, so we, we um, as I said, we're kind of finding you know we can put together, I think, a very very sound robust portfolio even in this environment. And I think importantly with a fund of funds, um, you've got that whole range of strategies. We can put we we believe we can put together a, um, a, a strategy that is actually independent, you know, fundamentally independent. I don't just mean statistically uncorrelated. It's fundamentally independent from some of the kind of craziness that you're seeing in, um, uh, in central banks. And so, how do you how do you go about position sizing within that? Is that is that something that um, is a, a client allocation where they we choose that, or is it something that you, that's driven by no, this is, you guys? You know, we, we're, uh, I, I should say the, the, the fund that we're, 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 we'll have this up and running, it's, it's in process right now. It will probably be, probably be open for subscriptions in about um, one to two months, but it will be prop, properly open for business and launched in October. Um, you know, my uh, partners and I are bootstrapping it with our own capital. Um, so this is very much our own vehicle. Um, which we are kind of opening up to kind of friends and family because you know we might as well. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. Right? We're doing the work already. Um, uh, so um, so that's kind of the the the, um, uh, the the objective here, the plan. Um, but we are very much the portfolio managers. You know, this isn't this is, this is a fund. Invest in the right. fund if you want to. Don't invest in it if you know. This isn't a kind of. It's not a, a you know a kind of private club network. It's not a, a, an investment club. You know, um, which which we kind of have up and running anyway through popular delusions. You know, we do write in mm. research or subscription research. We do write about investments that we find interesting. Some of those investments um, will not make their way into the fund because they're not necessarily appropriate for, for, for what we're trying to do with the fund. But they're nevertheless interesting. And we have connected uh, interesting investors to interesting managers and interesting investment opportunities um, using that research. So... You know, there is a kind of investment club aspect to, to, to what we do at Calderwood, um, but uh, that's not the fund that we're launching. The fund that we're launching is a fund of funds. We are the managers. In terms of position sizing, we don't really go by, I think we do things maybe slightly in an inverse way to, to, to the way many people might think about position sizing. I think a lot of people, certainly in equity land, you know, your position size is determined according to your your um, your expected return, right? You know, so you would allocate more to your, your higher expected return opportunities. We kind of go the opposite direction. We actually allocate more to the opportunities which have the less risk. <clears throat> um, and so, you know, for reasons which um, I can I, I can kind of go into if you're interested. But the the the, the idea we have is is really. Um, the, the, the least risky opportunities have the bigger allocations, right? Um, if there is a, if there, the lower the risk of, um, of, a, of, a, of a big drawdown, the lower the risk of a blow up, um, the bigger the allocation. Um, and that allows us to actually take quite extreme risk um, for certain opportunities, but always in the right size. It will always be a small size. And that's how we build a portfolio. You might look at the line items and think, holy crap, what, what the hell are these guys doing? But when you look at the overall portfolio, you have a very, very kind of smooth uh, return stream. That makes perfect sense to me. Um, and, and 
it's one of the things that I keep hammering home, um, both in the publication and, and just within our own portfolio. But it's just the, um, you know, the idea that you can actually have something in in your portfolio, which if you position size it correctly, um, you know, you can. It, it can provide you with those ex extraordinary um, asymmetric returns, but but if if it's a one percent of AUM, it's it's not a you know you could people will look at it and go like, well, hang on a sec, what are you owning that for? Um, yeah. But if you think about that tail risk side of things, um, it is that that traditional hedge where if you if you've got it, um, and it's it's like you know you you bought a house and um, do you buy insurance? Of course you buy insurance. You don't nobody stops and thinks that they're not going to buy insurance. And it's it's it's, it's similar things. But they there you have asymmetry because you might spend, I don't know, say for shits and giggles a thousand dollars a year on on fire insurance and you've got a million dollar house. And it's like, well, um, if it does blow up, you know, burn down, that's yeah. that's an asymmetric payoff. And so you're um, strengthening the portfolio. You're strengthening your portfolio by having by having risk. By having insurance. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And the right size, right? Yeah, because if, if you if you go too far down that path, um, naturally then you know you're not paying a thousand dollars a year. If you're paying fifty thousand dollars a year, a hundred thousand dollars a year on a million dollar property. Like I mean if right. I mean if you've got a hundred thousand dollar house and it's you know, you're paying out, you know, you know, or two hundred thousand dollar house and you're paying, you know, kind of um uh, $1,000 a year in insurance. Why is $1,000 a year the right size? Why is that the right size? Answer, because that, in the event that something happens to my £200,000 property, that $1,000 a year contract pays out $200,000. So I position size according to, so I position size in such a way that in that scenario, this is what it will be worth. Yeah. And so when you're, Effectively, you're, it's, it's, it's a kind of option. You're, you can position size options in exactly the same way. Um, if you position size a, a 10x opportunity, you're not going to put probably 30% of your portfolio in a 10x opportunity because most 10x opportunities are also, they can go to zero, right? So you, you may position size and say, well, if this was this does 10x, it would then be 50% of my portfolio. So, you know, which is probably going to be too big. So maybe I'll just put 5% in this 10x opportunity, you know, and not, and if I actually, if I don't want it to be 50, I'll put it, I'll put, you know, 2.5% of my portfolio in this 10x opportunity because I'm now position sizing according to what I think the position can ultimately turn into rather than what it is right now. And, and, and of course, that also comes into what does the rest of your portfolio look like? What is it that you're hedging? Because if you don't have a right. house, then you know. So and you don't need house insurance, absolutely. Yeah. And so, and, and, and I think this is where the portfolio construction gets interesting. And I think that a lot of people really, really miss with um, just purely kind of numeric um, uh, kind of portfolio optimization algorithms. Um, you you really have to know the portfolio. You have to know what's in the portfolio to know how it reacts under stress. And so you know, you, you, the first stage to knowing how to hedge a portfolio is to know what's in the portfolio in the first place. And I think when you speak to like really, really good art managers, really, really good and portfolio constructors, they know exactly what, not just the kind of equity risk, credit risk, duration risk, all of these kind of things, which you can kind of basically just kind of read off the, um, the tin. And what's the kind of liquidity risk, right? What happens if there's a liquidity event? What is the... 
um, uh, what's the convexity, right? What's the actual con convexity downside to the upside in the event that something? You know, so it might well look as though I've got a portfolio that's that's net long risk, except my net shorts are highly convex. In which case, you know, in the event of a down market, in the event of a liquidity crunch, my liquidity, my convexity kicks in in a way that offsets my longs. Now I have a well-hedged portfolio, even yeah. though if you just look, read, read off the tin, you might say, oh, you know, net loss 60%. Well, that's because you're not understanding the portfolio properly, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, of course, how the, um, how the original futures and options markets began back in um, Amsterdam. You know, and it was all farming, and it was you know that that you know when I try to explain um, that structure of uh, of a market to people, I always that's the easiest way to think about it. It's like as a farmer, right? You know, you've got a crop coming through. What if your crop doesn't deliver? What if you have you know a flooding, or you have a drought, or something like that? You know, what does that look like? And then how much of your production do you forward sell, right? And and yeah. so on and so forth. Um, and that's really, I think, the right way to think about any portfolio construction. Um, so, well, um, that's uh, it's great to um, to get your thoughts and all that, Dylan. We've been bumping up now against um, an hour and a half, so um, I think uh, <laughs> I better I better let you get on with your day, and um, we'll certainly have to do this again sometime. No, definitely. It's been kind of interesting. Yeah, kind of interesting conversation. We covered quite a lot. Yeah, really interesting. One of the things we didn't really get to talk about was the um, one of the examples we didn't go through on the decentralization versus decentralization, which I'll kind of leave you with. You know, the idea of kind of decentralization versus um, centralization and the benefits of decentralization. Um, I think one of the arguments in favor of centralization is actually American history, right? Where, you know, you kind of, the way America grew up, and we've, got, we've still seen the, the, the kind of, um, the, the repercussions of it today. Um, you know, you had its Confederate states, Southern states, which were based on slave labor, right? Now, a decentralized approach would have been just to let the, slave, let the, 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 the states make their own decisions, right? But it was only when you centralized it um, and it was actually kind of the centralized power of the south was of the, the south was weaker than the centralized power of the north, and um, that you actually moved to kind of you take the first steps to eliminating slavery. Uh, had you had the kind of laissez-faire of, of, of the of, of, of decentralized ideal, and which we both have a lot of sympathy for, but if you had that ideal in operation, would you still have slave states in the south today, right? And I. I think uh, well, the, 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 it's kind of interesting, yeah, it's an interesting think, counter to the centralization. I'd, I'd never thought about that. That's a that's a brilliant insight, because the the what you're dealing with there is just pure competitiveness, and it'd be difficult to argue that a state that abolished it in the short term would be competitive with one that didn't. In the longer term, you can certainly make the case because what you what you potentially do is you bring into that workforce an ability for for that workforce to actually grow and expand and to to um, to bring forth more ideas and so on and so forth so over time one could certainly make the argument that that you know abolishing it was the better but in the, in the short term there's, there's sort of 
it'd be difficult to make the case that you know um, your farmers that were your cotton fields that um, you know if you had one chap one side of the border another chap on the other side that you know the one who didn't have slave labor would be competitive with the one that did it's, it, it doesn't seem like a so yeah, it's a it's a very good point. It was, it was, it was, it was imposed on them. You know, the abandonment, they didn't abandon slavery. The South did not abandon slavery, right? It was, um, it was imposed on them. Yes. Right? And, and actually, I think as, you know, as anyone who understands American history knows, they clung on to it for a long, for a long, long time. You know, the, the, yeah. the, 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 the loss of the Civil War was kind of, you know, a milestone in the elimination of slavery, the abandonment of slavery, but it didn't, you know, it didn't actually, it probably took, arguably took another hundred years. Some would say that, you know, the kind of age of mass incarceration, it's just morphed into a different kind of um, uh, shape. Um, but uh, but you know, the point is, the South did not abandon slavery. Um, uh, the elimination of slavery was imposed on the South. So to your kind of, to those with a fetish for decentralization, do you believe in pure decentralization or not? Because if you didn't, if you do believe in decentralization, you would never have imposed um, uh, equal rights uh, on the South. The Americans, the American North would never have imposed, would never have abolished slavery, right? Because they believed in decentralization. So, I, I, by the way, I, almost, I, I think it was right to abolish slavery. It was completely right. But I think it's just a very interesting kind of question to ask um, uh, these, you know, the, 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 those who have a fetish for decentralization. And on that point, if you think about the, the formation of many of the things that, that have um, formed the basis of Western civilization, things such as human rights and, and a, a set of human rights rules or um, statutes, if you will, that um, have been widely implemented across Western countries. Now, um, that's centralization, right? It wasn't like the, the, there, was a, there was a concentrated effort from in a centralized to say, hey, this is what we what we believe, and this is what we're going to impose, and we're going to actually stand up for it. Um, and that's that was definitely another decentralized process, which just sort of you know organically happened. Um, yeah. So interesting yeah. concepts to think Very of. Very interesting. Very <laughs> interesting. Listen, I really really enjoyed it. Thanks a million. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm really kind of flattered. I, to, I, to, to I, Thank you so much for your for your time. Cool.